Okay, we're recording, we're live, and thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Ben Spohn, oral historian at the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. During these History Hangouts, we like to introduce you to some of the fascinating research being done using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially by folks who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Dr. James Kimball, a professor of communication and the arts at Seton Hall University. And today we'll be discussing his project tentatively titled The Slogan That Reshaped Society, The Rhetorical Prehistory of the New Deal. So Dr. Kimball, thank you for joining us today. And I have to say, as I was reading over the summary of your project this morning in preparation for our interview, I am I was struck by the idea that the Great Depression happened near started uh, nearly 100 years ago. When did that happen? <laughs> it's gone by very quickly, but uh, I kind of anticipate that pretty soon we're going to be having uh, a whole slew of uh, 100, uh, 100th anniversary um, examples of research coming out about the, uh, the onset of the Depression and then of course, uh, FDR's first inaugural. And is that what drew you to this uh, particular research topic or something else? Because I know your general area of interest is FDR. I'd say the timing is a little fortuitous, uh, but accidental. Uh, so in uh, the book proposal for the project, they certainly rely on the upcoming anniversary. Um, people seem to be fascinated by anniversaries like that. But uh, for my own interest, yes, it's the, the FDR administration, the Roosevelt administration more generally, uh, and its use of rhetoric, or even more specifically, its use of propaganda. And what do you consider uh, the propaganda? Or I guess maybe we should go uh, back to... Uh, well, where, where is the best place to start off? We can start... Uh, with the idea of propaganda in my area of scholarly interest, because that's probably the best way to figure out what the relevance the New Deal uh, has for me. So a great deal of my work is focused on the World War II era, so a decade later than this project. Uh, and what draws me to the World War II home front is the propaganda of the era. So as a rhetoric scholar, as a communication scholar, um, I am interested in communication, but in a historical sense. I'm also a historian, and I'm interested in how the propaganda of that era was used by the Roosevelt administration to help shape a home front in support of the war. Um, so this particular project takes me back 10 years earlier to the beginning of the Roosevelt uh, administration. Uh, and I've become interested over time maybe I should start, go back to uh, the World War II era, by how the, uh, the phrase the New Deal continues to echo in the 1940s, even though by that point it's already 10 years old. And so in some ways there were lots of signs that were pointing me back to 1932 because I kept wondering, what did the New Deal mean to people at the time? And how did it achieve that meaning? So as I dug further and further back, what I found was there were multiple meanings of the New Deal. And we've lost a lot of those now, although the phrase New Deal is still with us. You 
we're certainly familiar with the phrase the Green New Deal, which has come out you know, more recently and is obviously an homage to the original phrase. The idea of the New Deal has kind of become unidimensional in our cultural memories. And this project will try to uncover that because slogans are also a form of propaganda. So in discussing propaganda in this context, I think the first, at least for me, the immediate like pop culture reference that comes to mind is FDR's fireside chats. Is is that part of the dimension of what you're looking at here or, or something else? Where are some of the other propaganda tools? We see some of the the, the fruits, the, uh, the results uh, of his radio skills here in 1932. The fireside chats, as we remember them, really don't come until a little bit later. Um, but nonetheless, his, his uh, media skills are really advanced uh, for this time. Uh, and in this campaign, in the summer and then into the fall of 1932, we really see him taking advantage of radio. And in fact, uh, there's a great collection uh, there at the Hagley uh, Library, Museum and Library, um, uh, called the Ernest, Dichter's pa Ernest Dichter Papers, uh, in which one component is he's tracked uh, the numbers of people in FDR's radio addresses across the course beginning in, in 1932. And you can get a good sense for just how many people were listening to these addresses. So how many people were listening to these addresses? Like, What, what was the reach? Uh, in some cases, hundreds of thousands. And for the largest uh, campaign uh, speeches, it wasn't unusual for you to reach, you know, uh, in the millions. But of course, the population of the U.S. is smaller at that time. So we wouldn't expect to see the numbers that we might have seen in, say, the 1980s for a television address or something like that. Is there, hmm, I'm trying to think of a, a good way to, to parse this. Is, is uh, FDR helped by there being a, uh, relatively few media outlets available at the time sure i mean you know so television uh is only in its infancy at this point um of course no internet or anything like that so if you're going to reach to a national national audience or perhaps possibly an international audience at this point your options are really uh, newspapers or magazines, uh, or more immediately, radio broadcasts. Uh, and so at this point, most American families either have a radio or they know someone who has access to a radio, maybe in the building, something like that. Um, and there's this sense of immediacy with radio um, that FDR pretty quickly figures out how to take advantage of in a way that other politicians don't early on. Uh, and it's, it has an advantage in that immediacy over the, the print media and uh, the other forms of media that are more delayed and more distanced because now you can hear the voice of the politician on the other side and it feels so intimate and so close, which of course is what he takes advantage ultimately with his fireside chats. Right. So I, I think in... Uh contemporary online media we have this wonderful term that's been popularized over the last couple of years of establishing a parasocial relationship is that what he's doing back then too i would say yes and sort of an early version of that uh so yes parasocial relationships <clears throat> uh, we see these uh today 
when you have fans who develop a, perhaps an unhealthy fascination with a celebrity and imagine that they have a relationship with this celebrity when really the relationship is more one-way oriented. The celebrity sends out messages uh, and they have no idea who fan X might be, but fan X imagines in their head that there is a two-way relationship going on there. So I don't, I'm not aware of any scholarship that looks at the radio era in terms of parasocial relationships, but I would guess if somebody pursued that thread that you could see a, a continuous thread between today's tradition, you know, what we think of as parasocial relationships and the beginnings of that immediacy in the radio era. Absolutely. And I think FDR with his, um, comforting voice with the authority that he was able to exude uh, over the radio he was well positioned to build those kinds of relationships with people so by the time i was seeing you in the soda house doing your project you were looking at uh Raskub's papers but uh and we'll get to that but before we get to that what else were you finding from dichter uh, Dictor is useful for uh, a huge number of projects. Uh, so uh, I have a project that's been ongoing for some time on the War Advertising Council during World War II. Uh, and of course, a lot of what uh, Dictor's psychological studies were focused on was how corporations uh, can use uh, public media and advertising to pitch their products or reposition their their uh, pro their products. Uh, and so it was useful that for that kind of pro project. Uh, for this project, for the uh, New Deal project, it was primarily useful for that uh, tiny thread uh, focused on radio, uh, FDR's radio reach. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that exists because I haven't seen those numbers uh, anywhere else. Does Dictor say anything about why he collected that particular data set then? Not that I recall. It's a pretty narrow file folder, and it's just listing those numbers. Um, one of the neat features of the Dictor papers uh, is that it's pretty clear that he was a business person. And what he and his team would do is they would send out all kinds of proposals to corporations and uh, corporate entities and say, you know, we think that we could do uh, a study on how customers perceive um you know, palm olive or whatever the product might be. And here's some preliminary findings that we have. It's just a tremendous amount of work. And a lot of the file folders have only that proposal. And so either they weren't sent or the corporation just said, no, we're not interested or didn't get back to them. Um, whereas others develop into huge uh, follow-on uh, bits of correspondence where the corporation responded and said, great, let's, let's pursue this. We like your idea and paid Dictor and his team to uh, pursue that research. So this particular file folder, I have to assume, was part of some project that never got followed up on in some way. But they perhaps they thought they could approach the Roosevelt administration and say, we think we can help you uh, with your publicity with the public. But I don't know where that thread would have gone. That's interesting. It seems that Dichter was very uh, entrepreneurial. Uh, to say the least, there, uh, those papers are kind of a gift that keeps on giving for all sorts of different projects. <laughs> they are, uh, in fact, uh, just sort of anecdotally here, 
not so long ago, I was teaching a course here at Seton Hall, uh, our senior seminar in which uh, st uh, the students, first of all, write a research proposal and then conduct that research. Uh, so I had just come fresh from uh, the Hagley Museum and Library when I was talking to them about what the nature of a proposal is. And I took a copy of one of Dichter's proposals. And I said, look, here's something from the 1930s where this uh, psych psychological researcher in, in New York wanted to approach Corporation X and say, here's what I can do for you. And here's the homework I've done already. Here's how I propose to do it. What do you think? And I said, that's what you're doing in your research proposals. And so Dichter became a model for my students as well. It's fascinating that something that's almost 90 years old still can carry that type of relevance into today. Absolutely. Um, it's a great, precious resource you have there. Uh, but before we jump into your work with the Raskob papers, was, were there any other big collections that you consulted at Hagley on this most recent trip? Uh, for this most recent trip, it was primarily the Raskob papers. Uh, there were some other catch catches uh, of findings that sort of circulated around Raskob and people who corresponded with him. Um, but he was the primary uh, player of interest to the New Deal project. Uh, before we dive into those archival finds, can you just say a couple of words about who John Raskob was? Sure. So, uh, you know, our cultural memory has largely forgotten him. But if you were around in the 1930s, you almost certainly would have known who Raskob uh, was. So apart from his central role uh, as an executive in the DuPont Corporation um, in various capacities there, um, he was extremely well known for as, as a wealthy philanthropist and in particular in his role as the prime player uh, in getting the Empire State Building uh, not only off the ground, but into the air. And there's lots of fascinating stories about how they were in a competition with the Chrysler Building to build the tallest building in the world at the time and how he really pushed that competition. Um, so you know, there was sort of this celebrity aura that followed him in some ways as a person who uh, had a lot of money and was willing to support the, the right causes. Um, and was also a savvy business person. Um, and a, a separate in part from all of that, he was extremely involved in democratic uh, politics. Uh, so going back to the election of 1928, uh, he'd been a huge supporter of Alfred Smith. Um, and when that uh, fell apart, lots of controversy related uh, to that uh, election. Um, he's still very prominent in the Democratic Party and indeed becomes uh, the chair of the Democratic National committee. And here his wealth plays a central role uh, because it's the depression by this point. Uh, and so there's not a lot of donation money come in, coming in. Um, he more or less bankrolls the Democratic National Committee between 1928 and 1932. When they're not in power, Hoover's in the White House, uh, everyone's desperate for money. So they keep turning to Raskob again and again and asking for loans and for donations. And in his papers, you see some pretty good records of um, 
people in angst about this. You know, he at some point wants his money back. Uh, occasionally, he's writing off parts of the loan because you know he doesn't want to uh, bankrupt the, the Democrat, the DNC. Um, but he also does want something back from his investment. Did he get it back? <laughs> um, a lot of that comes after 1932, but I suspect he does not. Um, I'll have to pursue that that question um, uh, in, into the post-1932 era. Um, so, But unfortunately for this particular project, I have a pretty narrow time frame of July 1932 up to March 1933. Um, so... But that's a good question, and probably in my conclusion, I'll have to have to address it. Um, I suspect eventually he gets it back, but you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars that the DNC owes him uh, at this point. So, what's going on there with, with him at that moment? Because the Raskob that I am most familiar with and have uh, communicated with other researchers on, he is he becomes an opponent of the New Deal, correct? Uh, yes, and of course, in this period that I'm looking at, he's in transition. Um, so he's very fervently in support of the Democratic Party. Uh, he and Smith were huge allies. Um, but Smith is a player in the election of 1932. Uh, he loses out to FDR in the nomination process. And there's this changing of the guard uh, so that um, as FDR is becoming the nominee for the party, Raskob essentially excuses himself, um, although that money is still owed, and that still becomes a central uh, part of, and we'll come, we'll come to this, uh, in August of 1932, of how this New Deal campaign is going to get off the ground. Um, but he's really in transition, and you start to see inklings in the period that I'm looking at uh, where uh, the new players uh, in the Democratic National Committee, his uh, successor team, are writing to him and saying, you know, is it the case that you spoke in favor of this anti-New Deal position? Uh, and there's various groups like the, I forget the name, the Sons of Liberty or, you know, whatnot, that ultimately become huge anti-New Deal voices, more from the left than from the right, uh, that Rastub is kind of playing footsie with at this point. Um, and my sense is that you're right. Uh, after 1932, he becomes more and more vocal against FDR and the New Deal, uh, still from the left. It's a rascal to critic from the left. He's okay. still very much, uh, you know, a, a Democrat. Um, he, uh, I, I don't know if he would have been able to sleep with himself if he had come out as a supporter of Hoover. Um, and Hoover, of course, uh, from the rights and his followers are still huge critics uh, of the New Deal uh, all through that first uh, Roosevelt administration. Um, so uh, it's hard for me to imagine that he could, he, Raskob, could have looked himself in the mirror uh, and to uh, to have come out as a Hoover supporter, which he certainly wasn't. Maybe it's worth it to take a quick minute, <clears throat> pardon me, maybe it's worth it to take a quick minute to talk a little bit about what the New Deal was and what it wasn't, because I think it is popularly remembered as being a little more uh, flavored with social democracy than what it actually was. Maybe that's a way to put it. Sure. I won't claim to be an expert, so we should say this at the outset, uh, on the New Deal programs. Um, and this is part of the pitch for the book, really, which is that most of our historical work 
has focused on the New Deal as a set of programs, as a series of proposals and laws uh, that are begin in the first 100 days, the well-known first 100 days of the first Roosevelt administration, starting in March uh, 1933. These histories will sometimes start the prior summer at the Democratic National Convention in July 1932 in Chicago, where uh, FDR first utters that phrase that's going to become famous, the New Deal. But then it's almost as if they press pause and then fast forward, and the history renews in March 1933. So when we speak of the New Deal in our common parlance, generally what we're speaking about are those programs, you know, the, uh, the NRA, uh, the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and so on, that he, those alphabet programs that are so well-known and, and remembered in our popular culture, whereas this project wants to rewind and see what happened in those eight months between July 1932 and March 1933, because the phrase was out there. It was up for grabs, as I've discovered, and both sides, your left and their right, are struggling mightily over what this phrase might be. Um, so there is this conception of the New Deal as a, as a body of programs, and that story has been told so many times by so many historians. Um, this is a look back at the New Deal as a phrase before it becomes all of that. So in some ways, the... Oh, I don't want to trivialize it, but like the advertising campaign leading up to the product launch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, what, how does a phrase itself gain uh, favor uh, when it's circulating without real meaning? Uh, what does that tell us about uh, the left and the right or the various sides struggling to define it in some ways? Um, and part of the conclusion of the book will, folk will, offer a, a look at the echoes of this campaign because of course today in the 21st century uh we're, our politics are very defined by the idea of negative partisanship where you know it's not necessarily what i'm for but that i'm against everything that my opponents are against right that's what really motivates a lot of people in today's political circles we see some of the roots of that in the campaign of 1932 where people don't know what the new deal is or what it's going to be, but they know that they're against what the opponent's version of it is. Well, this certainly feels ripped from the headlines today too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And with, you know, the, the, the inauguration of the green new deal, um, a lot of those thoughts have been uh, renewed in some ways for our generation. So how did they handle it in that eight month period? You know, particularly what was Raskob thinking? Do you think that there you'll be able to find a specific point where he becomes the critic that we know him as? That's probably there. Uh, I don't think it's going to be in late 1932. Uh, in, uh, it, it may begin in the interregnum. Uh, so after Hoover has lost, but he's still in office for what seems like an uncomfortably long several months, four months, I think it was. Uh, and you, but at that point, we still don't know. Uh, Americans still don't know what's going to happen. Uh, banks are failing. Uh, Hoover is still trying to exert whatever authority he can as a lame duck. Uh, and FDR is rather famously silent. Uh, he's off yachting. 
Um, he's, he's saying no comments. Uh, he's staying out of the public uh, limelight. Uh, and so there's this period of absence where, again, the phrase New Deal is out there and everybody's anticipating. They're waiting. They're not sure. So it's possibly in that period that Raskob begins to take a turn uh, for the uh, anti-New Deal uh, fervor. So I'll have to look further uh, into that. Um, but it's that period that's really, I think, of interest is those eight months. And we can certainly talk more about those if you like. Absolutely, yeah. Let's do that. So those eight months. So we're really, the story begins in July 1932. Uh, FDR goes to the convention in Chicago. He famously flies. So he's the first uh, nominee to show up in person and to accept the nomination with acclaim, um, even though this was a, a bitterly divided uh, contest among several players, so many of whom we've forgotten uh, within the Democratic Party. And at the end, in his peroration of this address, uh, he says, I pledge to you, I pledge to the American people, um, a new deal. And there's, a, there's applause, but nobody in that audience, FDR himself, FDR's advisors, anybody in that room uh, in Chicago would have known that that phrase was going to take on such a pivotal role. And in fact, many of his advisors in later years kind of expressed amazement at how it took on a life of its own. Uh, one of the advisors is Samuel Rosenman, who effectively becomes FDR's speechwriter uh, in later years. And Judge Rosenman is writing in the 1950s, I think it is, 57 maybe, uh, in his memoirs. And he touches on this period of the campaign. And he says to himself, what is it what was it about this throwaway phrase that was just part of a campaign address you know this acceptance phrase in the new deal um what was it about that phrase that brought it to life that that uh, uh made it arise from a simple acceptance speech into a phrase that defined an era and he points to a cartoon uh, so a cartoon in a New York newspaper, as he recalls it, uh, Rosamond says the cartoon uh, was authored by Roland Kirby, who was a really famous uh, cartoonist uh, uh, for one of the large New York newspapers, I forget which one. Uh, and this cartoon, uh, which appeared the day or two after FDR's acceptance address, shows a farm couple, and they're looking up at the sky, and there's a plane. FDR's plane flying overhead. Uh, and coming down from the plane is a streamer that says New Deal on it. Uh, and it's clear from the posturing of the farm family that they're welcoming this New Deal with open arms. And Rosamond says that cartoon by Roland Kirby was the moment where this phrase became not just a throwaway but something that people could gravitate on. Now, Rosenman's wrong. Uh, so one of the features of this book uh, is that uh, I've discovered that nobody has reprinted Roland Clark Kirby's cartoon. And you'd think that people would, right? Pretty pivotal moment in visual political history. Well, that's because he didn't create that cartoon. Rosenman had it wrong. He was writing his memoirs some 20 years after the fact. He'd forgotten who the actual creator of that cartoon was. Um, and that was an, a cartoonist for 
another New York cartoon. So I've been uh, a newspaper. I've been able to track down that cartoon and um, I probably should keep it under wraps for now because that's one of the big findings of the book. Uh, the book will uh, unveil that cartoon for the first time so far as I know, this pivotal moment uh, in American political history um, by a different artist besides Bill Kirby. So that cartoon is a pretty big moment. But then, remember, we're in the Depression. Uh, the Democratic National Campaign uh, is almost bankrupt. And this is part of the thread that I wanted to pursue at the Hagley Museum and Library with the Raskob papers was to see just how bad it was. And it was bad. At one point, they couldn't even pay their volunteers uh, in, in the, the, the office or their, their low-paid staff. Um, they, they, they were having trouble with that. And this starts to leak out to the newspapers as well. At this point, also, uh, they're starting to figure out that they need a slogan of some sort, and they're deliberating over different ideas, um, and eventually they uh, they settle on the New Deal in parts uh, because Stuart Chase, who's a well-known, people call him a socialist, I'm not sure that's the right term for him, uh, has at this point come out with a book called A New Deal for America, um, something like that. But it uses that phrase, the New Deal, and it's pretty popular. It's reviewed pretty widely in August and September 1932. And so it's at that point you start to see the FDR, the Roosevelt campaign, say, I guess this is going to be our slogan. He starts to use it in his campaign addresses. Okay, so uh, if I'm going too in-depth here, let me know. Uh, it's at this point that Hoover, from his side, uh, who wasn't campaigning for a while, uh, but he starts to see uh, that he's probably going to lose. That's not looking good for him. So he and his advisors decide that he has to start campaigning as well. He starts defining the New Deal from his side. And what we end up with are two competing versions of this phrase, the New Deal. Everyone knows that FDR is in favor of a New Deal, but nobody really knows what it is. FDR doesn't have to be explicit because he's probably going to win. Why alienate potential voters by being specific? Hoover, on the other side, has every motive to define it in as ugly terms as possible. So what happens is everyone's offering their own spin on it. FDR's supporters end up giving it the most positive spin you can imagine. So in editorial cartoons, uh, in letters to the editor, uh, in public speeches, uh, from the left, you see the New Deal being defined as a new hope. Um, and often there's a religious fervor behind uh, this interpretation. So for instance, there's uh, a series of editorial cartoons that appear during the campaign and into the interregnum that show FDR with a new deal. And the new deal is symbolically represented as a scroll. Okay, so new deal and is written on the side of this scroll, and he's always holding it in his left hand. Yeah, why would he be symbolized holding the scroll in his left hand? Well, look to religious history, uh, where uh, in uh, the Catholic Church and then later the Christian Church, uh, there's a well-known symbol of Christ called Christ in Majesty, uh, where he is holding the scriptures in his left hand. All right? Uh, and so there's a pretty clear illusion, and you see this in some of the language uses of well, as well, 
of Roosevelt and his New Deal as a prophet and even a savior. He's come to save us, right? So that's this New Deal. He's the prophet of the New Deal. On the other side, uh, we have uh, those who represent the Old Deal, a more conservative Hoover uh, campaign and his fans. And they have every reason to define the New Deal in the most negative terms possible. So remember, this is a very conservative group, uh, almost Puritan in some cases. And Hoover fit that mold. Uh, he was uh, uh, well known for his near Puritan beliefs, um, a teetotaler. Uh, and a great deal of his fans and supporters uh, believed in the notion of sin specifically the vices. So they would have viewed poker and other forms of gambling as a sin. Well, think about the phrase New Deal for a second. My manuscript chases, uh, traces the roots of that phrase going back into the 19th century. And in the 19th century, early on, if you said we're going to have a New Deal to someone, you didn't have a political meaning. You were saying we're going to shuffle the cards and reapportion them, a new deal of the cards. And that's the meaning that Hoover and his supporters activate in the campaign of 1932. FDR, for them, isn't a prophet or some savior whose new deal is a new way of thinking about restructuring everything in a way that will save us. His new deal from the right is just a sinful poker game where he's the one, FDR, controlling the cards, and it's likely that the deck is stacked. Uh, he's going to give the best cards to his cronies. And it's simple from their perspective. And those are the two meetings in the campaign of 1932 that are going back and forth. Again, because FDR himself refuses to go on the record over and over again for specifics. There's isolated specifics in some of his speeches, um, but the New Deal isn't fully defined, and people are frustrated by that. So over and over again, you see the testimony from the time. That tussle continues into the interregnum, even after Hoover has lost. Um, I suspect that he believes he's going to have a comeback in 1936, and so he's planting the seeds for that comeback. And to do that, he continues on the theme of the incoming Roosevelt administration as sinful poker players. Right. So that continues up through March 1933. So what you have here is a, a whirlwind tour of those eight months where this phrase, this empty phrase, starts to get filled in by partisans. And that's a glimpse uh, of uh, a foreshadowing of what we have today with our negative partisanship. Indeed, this whole story feels uh, uncomfortably ripped from the headlines at times. Absolutely. Uh, a, a lot of these players back in the 1930s, I suspect, would have been very comfortable in our 21st century politics. Just uh, some of the vitriol, uh, the strong language. Um, they were certainly more measured than we are today, but they knew how to play hardball. Absolutely. So do you have a, a sense then uh, with FDR playing the whole uh New Deal game so close to the vest. Did he have a sense of what it was going to be? I'm I'm trying to get a sense too, like if, if that 
not knowing what it was going to be might have been some of what put off Mr. Raskob. If I could describe his approach in a phrase, and it's difficult to capture. He's pretty famously elusive. You know, he's he's portrayed as a sphinx at the time for a reason. Uh, is a speech that uh, one of his campaign speeches, uh, where he uh, it's a pretty well known speech at the time. Uh, he says, "What we have to do is we have to experiment. We have to see." what works and if what we try doesn't work then we have to try something else um so i don't have the sense that he has a clear vision of what he wants to do he has uh his uh well-known uh, brain trust uh, who's supporting him in this and even they can't agree they're all coming up with their own ideas and proposals it's guilty getting filtered through fdr to be sure um but the impression that I get is that we're just going to try this idea, and if that gets some traction, uh, we'll continue with that. But if it doesn't, we'll try this idea over here. And again, I'm not a historian of the New Deal programs starting in March 1933, but that's my, very much my sense of how that first Roosevelt administration takes place, is they try everything they can. If it sticks, they, they keep going with it, um, unless until uh, the Supreme Court strikes it down. Uh, and if it doesn't work, they try something else. Some of it does work, some of it doesn't. But I think the key for them is they wanted to try something new, which is really at the heart of a conception of a new deal. We're going to do something new, a new agreement. We're going to get rid of this old deal because the old way isn't working. So in establishing some of the rhetoric for both sides of the campaign, how... How far back does memory go, I suppose? If uh, uh, Immediately what came to my mind when you were discussing uh, Hoover's critique of the Democrats as being gamblers and poker players, my first thought was like, well, 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 go back to the early 1920s and what, what's President Harding doing in the White House? If not, uh, I don't know if poker was his game of choice, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hypocrisy uh, is uh, older than than dirt, I suppose we could say. Um, Hoover, I, I think, was a pretty good showcase for these sorts of attitudes uh, because he himself was extremely religious. Uh, he couldn't give a speech without referring to his faith. Uh, he was mentioned in sermons quite a bit as an exemplar uh, of a Christian faith. Um and this idea that he was against all the vices was pretty popular. Uh, so it's easy for me to imagine that uh, a very conservative, uh, religious uh, group of Americans uh, in the millions would have followed him and believed in him and have come to believe that anyone who thought that gambling was a good idea, which is what how FDR was painted, and he, by the way, he was widely reported to be fond of gambling, uh, was uh, not only against us, but also a sinner in some way. So uh, you, we have these strands going on today where uh, religion and politics get intermixed quite a bit. And so it's very easy for someone to bring uh, a religious perspective into their politics, um, and they become intermingled in important ways. Did, Ras <clears throat> me, did Raskob have anything to say on this in injection of religion into the campaign himself? 
Not that I saw in in the papers that I was looking at. Um, mostly what he's doing, uh, so he's thoroughly the businessman, uh, is he's uh, worried about the money owed him and yet worried about, uh, you know, the debt being incapacitating for the DNC. Um, so a lot of that correspondence is focused uh, in this eight-month period, at least, on the finances and what's owed. Um, you do see some back and forth uh, with his successors in the DNC. Um, so a lot of folks are writing to Raskob because he's well-known and saying, uh, I think that I could be a great person uh, in the Roosevelt administration. Would you whisper in the, in the uh, president-elect's ear and tell him to appoint me you know, to this post? Uh, and either he ignores them or he has his secretary respond, I'm no longer associated uh, with the the new administration, uh, which wasn't completely true because you do see some correspondence uh, with his successors. Occasionally, he even does recommend someone for a post. Um, but for the most part, the, the dealings are more financial in this period. Right. I just keep coming back to this idea, I guess, partly because it seems so uh, foreign as a as a modern audience of this idea that you have this very talented businessman who's criticizing a Democratic president to the left. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I mean, a lot of it is and you don't see this so much in the campaign of, of 32 and into the interregnum in 1933, but some of the strands are beginning here. Uh, accusations that uh, the, the New Deal is socialism and increasingly communism. And so this idea of an anti-communist uh, approach uh, is activated on both left and right. And so you see some unlikely bedfellows uh, who emerge. Uh, and my, my reading is, again, not being as familiar with the post-1933 time period yet, um, that you could be an ally with conservative critics if the New Deal, if your criticism was grounded in this idea of anti-communism. Because, you know, let's face it, there are a lot of folks who are very afraid of communism at this point, and to the point that FDR is perceived by some as being a fan of uh, Stalin in some ways, and certainly some of his uh, brain trust advisors are accused of that. Um, I could see those bedfellows uh, working out pretty well. So is this at all in any way like a, a, an extension or end run from that first Red Scare following the World War One? Sure. Uh, I, except possibly for World War Two, where it kind of goes dormant for a while, um, I think you could draw a pretty straight line between you know the various Red Scares all the way up through the 1960s and 1970s. You know, it's this anti-communist fear that's always present, even if it might be a little bit muted. Um, and it's definitely a player in the 1930s. Right. And I imagine, I know that we've talked a lot about how some of what you're researching has a very ripped from today's headlines uh, feeling to it, but do we maybe see something similar happening again during uh, Johnson's whole push, uh, Great Society push, too, in the 60s? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a sizable population of Americans that replenishes itself from every generation. Um, it's human nature. 
who want to see the world in very polarized terms, which is to say, um, if you're not precisely what I want or what we want, um, you're far on you know, the polar opposite than us. And so something that might be uh, somewhat socialistic in our minds becomes communist way over there. Um, and it's that polarization that really is very unhealthy that animates uh, a great deal of our history in the country. Obviously, it's still with us. Yes, very much so. Uh, I, I guess it's true what they say. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. Uh, um, are there any other interesting findings that you made at Hagley? This doesn't necessarily, because uh, I think we've got our bases pretty well covered. Uh, so this doesn't necessarily have to be uh, material that's going to go into your final project, but maybe uh, anything interesting that you're going to have to leave on the cutting room floor, but it's still fun to talk about. Uh, what I would mention here, and I guess this is kind of a, a, a plug for the Hagley Museum and Library, uh, which is to say that uh, you know, a great deal of my project is based on primary material that I found at the FDR Library, uh, the Hoover Library in Iowa, um, at Stanford, in the, some of the papers there. Um, but what I've what I found is missing time and time again is material about the August, uh, July to August 1932 period, um, where the campaign really hasn't started in earnest. Uh, and I was thinking, well, it's really the finances that they haven't started here. Um, they're in desperate times. But for whatever reason, the FDR library is missing a lot of that content. There's a, a more of a more or less a gap in their records. So the the Raskob papers, uh, so far as I've been able to find, are really the spot where one ought to go to fill in this gap. Uh, so it's a, something that this repository has that a lot of others do not, and that speaks well of the, the repository. So I certainly appreciate uh, the recommendation there. Uh, before I start to play us out today, I know we're still a few years out, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about when you anticipate the final project will be done and when your book will be out. That is a great question. So the book proposal is nearly finished. I mean, the, the hardest part of any book proposal is preparing your sample chapters. So those are fully drafted. The last link really was spending time uh, there in August, uh, earlier this this year. Uh, so now it's just a matter of getting the cover letter done and getting that out uh, to my first press of choice and then seeing what they think. Now, every press is different. Uh, they can move quickly or slowly. My hope is that there is a contract uh, for this book by late uh, 2023, so here in a couple of months, uh, and that the full manuscript uh, would be complete then by the spring of 2024. Um, and then it depends a little bit on the presses or if the press ultimately you know, doesn't uh, accept it and we go to a second press uh, on their publication schedule. Uh, many presses uh, publish twice a year. And so if you happen to get good timing, it moves up half a year. If your timing is bad, you end up you know, bumped back a little bit. So the bottom line here is that I would hope to see this book sometime in 2025. Um, if I don't play the poker cards exactly right, uh, could be 2026. And I'm sure we'll talk again once it's out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
would love to come to the Hagley and offer presentations and so on, because you always manage to grab a great audience that's very interactive. Well, we'll keep in touch and thank you for joining us today. And for our audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, you can join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks, and see you next time.